Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Health by Heather Hirsch. I'm so excited to launch part two of my series I'm doing with my friend and colleague, Dr. Rachel Rubin, the one and the only. In today's episode, we're going to be doing the reverse of what we did last week. Last week, we talked about what men need to know about women's sexual health in midlife. So if you haven't listened to part one, definitely go back and listen to that. In part two, we're talking about what women need to know about men's sexual health in midlife. And so since 99% of you, my wonderful listeners are women, this might be something that you are hearing for the first time. I'm so excited. Let's get into it. Hi, and welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Health by Heather Hirsch. Today, I have with me again for part two is Dr. Rachel Rubin. If you missed part one, you definitely need to stop what you're doing. Uh, Go back and listen to that because we really set the stage for what we're talking about today is what women need to know about menopause. I love it. Is, 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 does everyone, every male go through menopause? No? no. Okay. What we need to know about men's sexual health, particularly at midlife. Um, so that's what we're getting into today. If you don't know Dr. Rachel Rubin, she is my in real life friend and amazing colleague in Washington, DC. She's a board certified urologist and sexual medicine specialist. Um, she's assistant clinical professor of urology at Georgetown. And she is, uh, opening her own private practice in Washington, D.C., and she is one of the leading experts in sexual health here in the United States, and if you don't already know her, you you should and you will. So thank you for joining again today, Dr. Rubin. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm so happy to be back. I could talk to you endless for hours, and I love having your podcast in my car because I feel like you commute with me on uh, every once in a while. That's so fun. I always have patients or, um, you know, people who come up to me and they're like, I love listening to your show. And I'm like, I love that you love listening to my show because a podcast is a very special, uh, like delivery of content and that you put it out and you just don't really know where it's going or who's listening and, and how they're interacting with it. So that's so cool to hear. So I, um, you know, I'm going to be honest. A lot of times when I'm interviewing people about midlife and menopause, I have a little bit of a clue or my own opinion on things and really kind of just want to add to what I've already, you know, talked about here on the show, but I have no clue about men's health. Like, like it's, Embarrassing, given the fact that I um, am a board-certified internist, although I haven't seen men since 2000s, uh, like 1918. And actually, even when I was uh, doing internal medicine, I only had a handful of male patients, and they were very, very nice to kind of um, go along for the ride with me. So let's talk about men's health. I, I super excited. Like, I can't wait to learn. So 
we talked last time about like three things, you know, I said like, let's kind of break this down into three chunks, three different things or aspects of um, women's uh, midlife and menopause that, you know, their partners, be them male or female should know. Let's do the same thing. Let's keep along with that theme. Well, is it, maybe do I need a refresher on men's health in general on like hormonal changes and what men go through, or is it just much more simple than women? Well, you know, let's talk about it. And I actually spend, you know, anyone who hears me on social media, I talk a lot about the female side of my practice and I see about 50, 50, a a male, female. And the reason my social media is more female focused is because we know a lot less about female sexual medicine. And there are a lot fewer experts in the female sexual medicine world on the male side of things. There's a lot more money. There's a lot more research and we just have a lot more interest in that side of things. So I end up being a little bit more quiet just because there's already a lot of people doing this work and a lot of amazing people out there, but I do about 50% of male sexual medicine. And I love it. I love taking care of, of men with sexual problems. And in a way they're actually not that much different. We all talk about how different men and women are. And I would argue, I think we're a lot more alike than we are different. There is a spectrum. There is a, a, there are the same sexual problems. And I think about them very similarly. So with women, there are libido issues. There are arousal issues or orgasm and pain. Okay. So if we think of those four boxes, I have the same four boxes for my male patients. There is libido, there is arousal, which you can call erections, right? Arousal, there's orgasm, and then there's pain. And so um, when it comes to the male sexual issues, arousal, the erection issues, those kind of come a forefront. Those get talked about the most because we have the most things to do about it. We have a lot of treatment options for erectile dysfunction or erectile dissatisfaction, if you could call it. And so the issue is really, um, we often spend a lot of time talking about those issues because we know the most about them. Mm -hmm. So if you think of as, as men age, there is sort of a slow decline for testosterone for some people, not everybody, the testicles keep making, unlike women, the testicles keep going. Think Hugh Hefner had babies, you know, when he was 85 years old. But um, as men age, uh, everything gets a little bit less healthy. Arteries get clogged, muscles get less strong, and your penis is just a muscle. And so 50% of 50-year-olds have erectile dysfunction. 60% of 60-year-olds have erectile dysfunction. Guess what? 70% of 70-year-olds. It's pretty easy to think about. And in order to have healthy erections, you need a lot, you need healthy muscle, you need healthy blood vessels, and you need healthy nerves, right? And so as men age, and they have issues with those things, right, you're going to have medical problems that are going to affect the health and the ability of your penis to function the way that you wanted to, you want it to in the way that it worked when you were 19. And so um, a lot of my job in explaining and educating men about their erection issues is really getting them to understand how their general medical health is, is really being shown through their erection health. And so if they have diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, cholesterol issues, all of those things can present as sexual dysfunction. And I tell you, I can get a guy to quit smoking much more quickly than to say, hey, this is going to give you cancer versus, hey, smoking is terrible for your penis and you should really quit smoking because you're going to get worsening of your erectile function. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And I'm, I really want to ask you, why do you think that men's, I mean, this is the obvious, this is the elephant question in the room. And, and I guess it's a good place to ask it as we're talking about like, you know, the first thing, which is um, arousal or erections. 
why does men's sexual health get so much more attention than women's sexual health? Is it because it's a man's world? Why do women's sexual health pharma, you know, get so much um, more attention than women's? What's your take besides for just it's a man's world? Well, you have to understand that um, a lot more research has been done. So in a way, it's a man's world. That's definitely part of it. Um, Viagra was so incredibly successful, right? It actually almost got thrown in the garbage until some brave soul said, oh, my erections are so good. And the conversation changed drastically 20 years ago for men's sexual health when we had a product that was so wildly successful. And then we had some advocates who like Bob Dole got on TV and started talking about Viagra. And these advocates would get up there. And women's sexual health is still really controversial because so many people, even so many women like to come out and say, oh, it's not biologically based. It's all psychosocial. It's all communication. Pharma is just trying to take advantage of women. And so even when we do have some therapies that do work, there's a lot of sort of infighting um, and difficulties of getting women to um, adopt and to try things. And I think, again, think of your own world. You've been to the guy, you've just had babies and, and you've been to your gynecologist many times in the last several years, have they ever really asked about your sexual health, right? You don't have to Never. answer this on your podcast, but have they ever said, you know, can you orgasm? Do you have any problems with sex? Do you have any questions about sex? What kind of sex do you like? And do you have questions? You know, that is not, doctors don't ask those questions. And so women's sexual health is not at all focused on or even sort of acknowledged within the medical world. Who do you go see, right? Not everyone comes to see me. Like what doctor takes care of your sexual health? So we actually did research recently where a, a medical students went on a Reddit thread and looked at women complaining of different sexual problems. And it, when it came to orgasm problems, no word of doctor or medical provider came up in any of the threads, right? None. Like nobody was like, what does your doctor have to say about this? And so we have a problem in thinking that women's sexual health is valued and is worthy of sort of being a medical condition. Yeah, agree. I definitely think that the way we teach first and foremost, like medical students, medical school is completely um, the male, you know, version of, um, and then even in, and again, there's research to show within OBGYN residencies and internal medicine residencies, they get, you know, very little education about menopause. And we're talking about OBGYNs, right? Those are the doctors you think are supposed to know about these things. And you're right. No one ever asks about that. I mean, I do, and you do, but there's, that's, there's very few of us. So that's why we, we need to, uh, reproduce, make more of us. I guess I, I don't know if reproduce is the right word, but um, so interesting. We could do a whole talk about that. All right. So on to the next thing, what do you think either, um, is, is the next big thing that women should know about men's sexual health? Um, or should we, you kind of want to stick to, um, pain and changes in libido and, and, and talk about how that happens in men? Well, you know, again, I think erections are a good marker for general health. And if you find your partner is having erectile problems, don't take it on saying, oh, it must be me. me. That is why they're having erection issues. It's definitely almost never you like really almost never you. Um, there is often always a biological logical cause. And so one thing is really important. So, and I give this to my male patients, I say, if you are being chased by a tiger, do you want to have an erection? 
no, you're going to get eaten by the tiger, right? If you're running away, if you're fearful, if you're stressed, your um, muscles are all going to contract to run away. And your penis is just a muscle. And so if that muscle is contracting, you're squeezing all the blood out of it. And so stress. So, so if your partner is, has a busy meeting the next day or is super anxious or super stressed about something and you find the erections are weak, it may be a, 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 a sort of adrenaline issue where the adrenaline is causing the penis not to relax and to, for blood to flow through it. But it may be something worse. He may have uh, cardiovascular risk factors. I've had a lot of young men in the past couple of years get diagnosed with really, really bad cardiovascular risk factors, a lot of high cholesterol and clogged arteries because the blood can't get to where it's going. And so we've saved, I believe a few of my sex therapy colleagues have saved men's life because they, they took their erectile issues seriously. Yeah. And so it can be a marker for sort of other health outcomes. So really understand that if your partner is having erection issues, they really need to see a doctor and that's your window. Sometimes men are a little stubborn and don't want to go to the doctor, but having that, you know, a, a provider who understands erection issues, then help them get the care that they need for their diabetes, their high blood pressure, their um, extra weight and things like that. Cause that is so, so important for good erectile health. And then your thing is hormones, right? Is understanding hormones uh, when it comes to menopause, well, hormones are important for men too. And so normalizing that and getting both partners and both genders to understand the importance of hormones actually really helps. So Heather, if, if you were to draw estrogen levels on your patients who you've given estrogen, a, a FDA approved bioidentical estrogen for what approximately what levels do you tend to see if you were to draw their labs? Yeah. I always tell my patients, well, on hormone therapy, we want to see your estrogen, your estradiol free somewhere between 40 and 70, maybe a little bit higher if you're younger. And you know, those are helpful to gauge if you're in the right ballpark. Now, if your labs come back at 30 or 27 and you feel great, then there's nothing else that we need to do. I love it. And I love that, those numbers because it's not a one size fits all, but we like ranges. We like to look at things. And so if I draw blood of all the men in my practice, their estrogen levels run about 25. Okay. So when I see a woman in menopause, whose estradiol is zero, right. Or less than five, because our numbers don't even go to zero. A lot of times right, I say, less well, than your, 10. your husband who's with you here today has an estrogen Makes of more estrogen than you do. Right. Right. Uh, when I try to give you estrogen in menopause, I'm just trying to get your, to you to at least a little higher than your husband. And no one's running after these men worried about their bones, worried about their brains, worried about their libidos, right. No one's talking about that. And so it's really important and understand sort of what, you know, different estrogen levels are, right? Men have healthy bones for the most part, though there are things that come up for men's bones as well. Well, testosterone is a fascinating subject because your female patients, their testosterone runs about, you know, somewhere in the 30 to 50 range, right? Whereas your men are going to be in the 500 to a thousand range or like somewhere like 300 to a thousand range. So men make about 10 times more testosterone than your female patients. And so that can also drop over time. And so a man who's used to living at 700, if now he goes to 300, does not like that fluctuation, um, just in the same way your patients who are withdrawing from estrogen do not like, like that. that withdrawal. And maybe if they lived at 10 forever, they'd be okay, but it's that, that, that decrease between 150 to 10 that hurts so damn much, right? Yeah. 
So it is that, so that's what can happen in our male patients as well. And so side effects of decrease in testosterone or hypogonadism, we like to call it, can be low energy, low libido, erectile dysfunction, mood issues, sleep issues. And so that's when we start talking about treatment, just like our menopause patients, we look at numbers, but we also look at symptoms. And so it's, if you have no estrogen in your body, but you have zero complaints and zero bother, and you don't want to be on hormones, who am I to tell you, you have to be on menopause hormone therapy. Of course not. But same for my male patients. If they are symptomatic and their numbers are low and they feel better boosting their testosterone, data is just as controversial actually on the male side as on the female side. And it's actually a very similar story fascinating story. So there was this fear that it caused prostate cancer, that it did all these horrible things, but data did not prove it. And so over time, we've been able to debunk all of that data, but there is still a large percentage of providers, endocrinologists, primary care providers who are deathly afraid of giving testosterone to men. And there's the same clinics and the snake oil salesmen, the pellet clinics, the shot clinics. Um, there's I couldn't uh, imagine all... living in two of those worlds. I live in two. One. I live in two of those worlds. And uh, it is... hence it all makes sense now. <laughs> But it makes me a better advocate for my patients yeah. because I understand how it works on all genders. And so I'm a little bit more for, you know, it's funny. I had this great conversation with an OBGYN just uh, last weekend at the ISWISH conference where I said, in urology, we love quality of life, right? We'll say, hey, Viagra can cause blindness and make you die instantly if you take it with nitrates, but it's going to give you a great erection and a great sexual health. Let's do it, right? Viagra, everyone gets Viagra. <laughs> and so we're better at talking about quality of life with men, right? Things like enlarged prostates and urinary issues, it's all quality of life. Mm -hmm. And yet, so we talk about quality of life as urologists. And then when it comes to the female side, everyone will not talk about quality of life. They just talk about safety and the fear of boobs. God. Of boobs. The, and, boob, and it's all boobs. breast health. Just right? boobs. Just what we are just... All you are is breast tissue and, and your whole life is just decided on whether it's good or bad for your breast tissue, which is yeah. just, you know, as you and I could talk about forever. Yeah. Let's, well, yeah. Um, speaking of male counterparts, I have one with me today. Hi, Hi baby. Everybody. Okay. When you're podcasting Man. with your baby, this is what this turns into. Baby Brody has been on, uh, another podcast episode of sky podcast sky well, women sky podcast so it's good that we're talking about men here because he's gonna be a little man one day yeah he is okay so sorry that microphone is really close to my face right there so so we've talked about two big things and um if you listen to part one we we did this as well and the last one we talked about was like separating like the myth and mystical of sex from from reality and so i have another one that i kind of want to um see what you have to say about which is that this idea at least women in my life uh, you know come to see me in the office seem to have is that men just have this never ending sense of libido. And, and I feel like that can't, you know, I, I mean, I'm a clinician, so I know that that, that can't be tr totally true. Certainly there probably are some that, 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 that do, but there's this idea that men always want to have sex. And that's, that's just, you know, let's break that, that social myth down a little bit. 
So I think, again, just in like I said before, as men and women are a lot more similar than they are different, is that there's a spectrum. Of course, remember, men have 10 times the amount of testosterone as we do. So yes, libidos can run higher, but I have plenty of um, patients in my practice where the male partner has a lower libido than the female partner. And so really understanding that it is a spectrum and that, you know, the key is, is it, is it acceptable? You have, I'm never going to get couples where their libidos are the same or congruent, like we like to say it never happens. And so that's where the communication piece comes in and the education piece comes in, because if you can get people at least uh, deciding, okay, uh, once a week, we're going to have us time. And this is the time we're going to have together. And maybe if you want more times, you either are by yourself, or we have a, a, a reasonable discussion of what it looks like that makes everybody happy. And that's where the sex educator, sex therapist, sexual health consultant, like we talked about in the last uh, podcast can be really helpful yeah. to help have that communication. You know, I find couples, they know about each other's constipation schedules a lot more than they know about their masturbation schedules, ah. right? You'll, you'll ask partners, you say, well, does your partner masturbate? And they'll say, I don't know. So, well, have you ever asked them? I said, no, I've never asked them. I said, why not? Well, it's too embarrassing, right? It's too uncomfortable, even though they'd be totally fine. Really, everyone has different comfort levels with that kind of activity, but it's really hard for people to talk about. I wonder and why so- that is like, you know, my partner's seen me birth three humans, but I don't know if he's ever asked me that exactly right, right? and Call so that's out my thing. poor husband dear but yeah you're gonna ask poor husband later right you know and yeah. I think that becomes really important to talk about and say well why don't we talk about that and questioning that is it right you like is that a correct thing to not talk about why you talk about everything else it doesn't seem like you have other things that are sort of off limits and so why is that off limits to you and your partner yeah exactly that's a great point I guess I'll have to I guess I'll have to go in for the question later tonight. Anyways, but, you know, and I asked that question because I wonder that if you ever see men feel stigmatized or embarrassed that they have a lower libido because society tells, you know, women that we're supposed to be these docile, ready creatures for whenever the men just spontaneously decide, you know, again, this is very heterosexual, um, but because we're talking about men's health um, and, and what must they feel like if that's not the case and, and what should their partner know if that, that is them? I think again, it, it, I've had these patients come to see me and they say, you know, Dr. Rubin, I'm here for low libido. And I say, well, are you bothered by your low libido? They say, no, I'm totally fine with it. I love my partner. I find my partner attractive. I like spending time with my partner. My partner is a great spouse, a great parent. Uh, it's all really good. I'm super happy, but my partner wants me to have a higher libido. I've had the exact, and, and, and I said, okay, well, if you were just switch genders for a, a, a second, right? If you were to change that conversation for a woman, no one would blink an eye. They'd be like, yes, you and 40% of all women have low libido. But as soon as a man comes and has that question, it's all of a sudden a huge deal, a huge problem. And and let's, you know, call the presses. And I think, as I said, I have a lot of female patients who have very high libidos and are very interested in sex. And the same is true on the male side. So I think, again, we're a lot more alike than we are different and really understanding that there is a spectrum. It is variable. And if you're uncomfortable, if you're bothered by your partner's too high or too low interest. It's a conversation. And then there are, you know, medical reasons and medical providers who can help you if you are bothered by it. If you are not bothered by it, well, then you keep enjoying your awesome life and, and, and there's nothing for us to do. 
there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah, I, I think that this is the perfect, you know, uh, closing the loop on if you haven't listened to the first one, definitely go back and listen to that one because these are so complimentary and you're absolutely right that there is the same uh, threads and symmetry between men and women and you have kind of gotten me to believe that men and women are more alike than we think. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm buying it. I'm buying it. So congrats. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. This was so fun. I know we've been trying to do this for a very long time. I'm so, I'm so thankful that you had time out of your busy schedule as you're working on building your brand new, amazing, incredible practice. And we're going to have to have you back on the show in a couple of months and see how things are going. Um, you definitely want to check out Dr. Rachel Rubin on social media. I will link her Twitter profile, her Instagram, anything else, her website, all of that down below. So please do check it out, like, and follow Dr. Rubin because she is one of the most entertaining um, uh, educator, doctor, social media people that you could ever find. So please, please do. Um, I know she would appreciate it. And I would appreciate it. And we will all appreciate it. Um, thank you again so much for just knowledge bombing on us. And any last final thoughts as we end this two series segment? Well, just remember, it's supposed to be fun, right? Sex is supposed to be fun. So if it's not fun, you're doing it wrong and you got to rechange your mindset of why things are not going well and never be afraid to ask for help. I think that's so important. And just, this is awesome. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you guys so much for listening into the show. If you like this episode, please leave a review, send us some stars, let us what you know about having Dr. Rachel Rubin on again. We appreciate it so much. And I'll see you again next week for a brand new episode. Bye everyone. Thank you for spending your time with me. If you love the show, please go ahead and give it a star or review. I thank you in advance.